0: What's
1: up, everyone? In case you don't know who she is, she received her PhD in English literature and since then has done a lot of work regarding like textual criticism, the reliability of the Gospels, and apologetics. So we're going to be talking about some of her recent works, why we can believe the Gospels are reliable, and all kinds of fun stuff today. Dr. McGrew, how are you doing?
0: I'm good. Thank you for having me, Zach.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm honored. So, just to start off, for someone who doesn't know who you are, what you do, can you just talk a little bit about who you are and what got you interested in all this, like textual criticism stuff?
0: Sure. Well, um, I'm a philosopher. I did my uh, PhD in English, but then subsequently, after that, I've done virtually all of my publishing in what's called epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge in philosophy. My husband and I have a book. Uh, on what's called meta epistemology. Uh, I've done a lot of publications in probability theory and uh, probability theory of testimony and uh, that kind of thing. So my, the majority of my credentials really are actually in what's called analytic philosophy and analytic epistemology. Um, And uh, back in 2008, 2009, you know, Tim and I have, Christians all along, we've been interested in apologetics all along, and we were invited to write the article on Jesus' resurrection uh, in the big Blackwall Companion to Natural Theology, edited by J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig, and we wrote that that's out there. Uh, There's even a free version on my website, sort of a preprint version. And uh, then we realized the importance of the reliability of the gospels to the case we were making. And Tim, my husband began working, especially in historical apologetics. So the things that were done in the 19th century uh, and even the 18th century, that maybe are great arguments that we've just kind of forgotten about. And so as as he began uh, reviving those, I began learning about them. Then we became really interested in that and started writing more and speaking more on the reliability of the gospels. So, um, and then, you know, I I wrote a book about undesigned coincidences that came out to quite a lot of acclaim in 2017. That was the argument Tim originally introduced me to, and I just happened to be the one who had more time to write the book. Uh, And then I became interested since then on some other themes relating to reliability and some alternatives to full historicity of the gospels that are being suggested in the evangelical circles, which led to my second book, uh, The Mirror or the Mask, that just came out in December and just came out in Kindle on June 1st. So that's a really brief version of how we went through from just secular philosophy work into applying that insight in the theory of knowledge to the issues of uh, the Gospels and Apologetics. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I actually just listened to a few days ago uh, Tim's debate with Bart Ehrman on the Unbelievable Show about the whole Undesigned coincidence thing. It's a really interesting debate. Uh, so for those of you listening, we're going to kind of go through three of uh, Dr. McGrew's works here. We're talking about Undesigned Coincidences, and we're going to talking about the Mirror and the Mask, and then we're going to talking about her uh, upcoming work. If I'm if I believe right, The Eye of the Beholder. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Uh, all right, so let's do this. So we're going to start uh, talking about the idea of the argument from Undesigned coincidences. So uh just to start off, for someone who has no idea what this what this whole idea is of undesigned coincidences, can you just talk a little bit about it?
0: Sure, absolutely. So I call an undesigned coincidence an interlocking that points to truth. An incidental, casual interlocking that points to truth. So here would be a made-up example. Suppose that you are interviewing two people who both say that they witnessed a bank robbery maybe one is a teller and one is a customer and uh one of them says the bank robber's shoe was untied and then the other one says um he doesn't mention anything about an untied shoe but he says uh the the bank robber uh tripped on the way out of the bank so those two things fit together one doesn't mention the untied shoe, the other doesn't mention that the robber tripped, but they each mentioned the other fact. And if the two, shoe was untied, that would explain why the person tripped. So that's a really simple example of an undesigned coincidence. And it gives us more confidence that these people are telling the truth and that they noticed what really happened, that they, we can trust them on factual matters because they don't appear to be trying to fit together. You know, it's not like one of them says, Oh I bet I know that's why he tripped or something because then he could just be um, misremembering or you know creating a false memory or something like that. They don't even appear to be thinking about what the other person said. That's what I mean by casual. And uh, and yet they interlock, they fit together as a question and answer. Sometimes both of them can be explained by some other fact, like some of the references in the gospels can all be explained by the fact that probably Joseph, Jesus' foster father had already died by the time the gospels started. But these are these very incidental things that they say that all fit together under that explanation. So there's different kinds.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so basically, just to frame this idea and make sure I'm I'm following you right, it's the idea that the, you have these four different writers, and sometimes they'll talk about the same events in the Gospels, and that they're kind of their testimony that what they're writing is almost like, in a way, adds on to what they're saying in ways that weren't designed. Is that kind of the idea of this whole argument?
0: Not designed in the sense of that they weren't trying mm-hmm. to allude to the other or merely copying from uh, something where they just accidentally both, you know, copied different parts or something like that. Um, So in a way that was unplanned, they're fitting together. It doesn't even have to be the same event. Sometimes some examples that I have, um, they're talking about different things, different events. And yet you, Lawrence, I was like, oh, he mentions this in this account. And that's explained by something that he mentions in in this account of a different event. So that's kind of cool too.
1: Mm, Yeah, a lot lot of really interesting stuff here. So could you just talk about, Uh, one or two or three, I don't know how long, how much time it'll take some of these like undesigned coincidences in the gospels, like what we're seeing, what you see, you you write about in your book.
0: Sure. Yeah. I'll give up just a few. Um, One that's really popular. uh, People seem to like this one is that when Jesus is at the uh, feeding of the 5,000, he turns to Philip and says, where can we buy bread for these to eat? So before he makes the bread And you could ask like, why did Jesus ask Philip? Now, maybe it was just random, you know, but if it really happened, there might've been a reason why he asked Philip in particular, that question, can we find out? Maybe we can find out, maybe we can't, but if it's a real story, it's a real fact, then that gives us some reason to think maybe we could find out why. So that is mentioned in John. Then we go to Luke. Luke mentions that the feeding of the 5,000 happened somewhere near Bethsaida. He didn't say anything about that conversation with Philip. Then you go back to John, but to other passages in John on completely other topics. And John just in passing says, Philip was from Bethsaida. Okay, I mean, he's not even talking about the feeding of the 5,000. Now you put all these together and you get this idea of Jesus, you know, he's kind of teasing them a little. He's not really asking them to go buy buy bread. But he says to Philip, hey, where around here can we buy bread so that these can eat? So that's kind of cool because it takes this this casual connection among different passages uh, that don't appear to have any intent to refer to one another. There's one example. Another that uses uh accounts of different events, like I was mentioning. Um, we find that in Mark and in Luke, the Jerusalem leaders are very hostile to Jesus already early in his ministry. And we learn this because they mentioned that they actually sent representatives to Galilee. It's about a 70 mile walk or more to listen to him. And sometimes these people are speaking up and saying, he's casting out demons by Beelzebul, the, priest, or the, the prince of the demons. Like, why do these already hate him so much? You know, why are they so hostile already? Um, And they're right there when he claims to be able to forgive sins, ready to jump on that and say he's blaspheming. Okay, why did he get these people sent to sort of stalk him, we might say, all the way from Jerusalem? Well, when we go to John, we find John reporting that Jesus cleansed the temple early in his ministry. and that really offended them. they said, "You know, by what authority do you do this and he he didn't apologize at all. He said, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." you know he was uh he, he was very um bold and so obviously they were trying to find out more to use against him they were um trying to find out more about who he was and what this was all about. So here's this early temple cleansing in John, which some people think didn't even happen. Some people think that Jesus only cleansed the temple once and John moved it back to early, but actually just that hostility that there's no accounting for in the um, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke at all, is well accounted for by the early temple cleansing. So that's an example with completely different incidents. Here's a third one that I'll just give real quickly. Um, In Matthew's account of the beheading of John the Baptist, it looks a lot like Mark's and there may be some literary dependence there, which I'm not denying, but Matthew adds a unique detail. He says that when Herod was speaking and saying, this must be John the Baptist risen from the dead, he was thinking very superstitiously about Jesus, hearing of Jesus' ministry. And then in flashback, Matthew like Mark tells, Uh, about the beheading of John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew says he spoke to his servants. He said this to his servants. That to his servants is not in Mark, even though in other ways that there's a lot of verbal similarity. So uh, was Matthew just making this up to make it look more interesting or make make a better story or something? Well, no, because you go to Luke. Again, totally separate context. Luke is talking about some women uh, in Luke 8 that were following. Jesus' ministry, contributing financially, and he starts listing them. It lists Mary Magdalene, uh, and I think he lists Susanna there. And then he says, and Joanna, the wife of Huzza Herod's household manager. So now we have a very plausible connection between Herod's servants, a guy who was actually would have been in charge of the servants, and the followers of Jesus, by which Matthew could very plausibly have learned what musing was going on from Herod to his servants. Again, these aren't even accounts of the same uh, event, but they fit together to answer that question. How could Matthew really have known what Herod was saying to his servants? So that's a third one. And there's a lot more, even in Acts, between Acts and the Pauline Epistles and Hidden in Plain View, my first book in New Testament is about both the gospels and Acts.
1: Yeah, and if you're interested in Hidden Plain View, there's a link to it in the description so you can uh, get that book. Uh, one there's a couple of direct things I'm thinking. One of the things that I'm interested in is there's, especially on the atheist agnostic side, and even some Christians will say that this whole idea of like undesigned coincidences, this whole, this whole argument for the reliability of the gospels is really an argument that's been like uh, dead for centuries. And it's just kind of like, st- There's people who be like, oh, apologists are grasping at straws or whatever. And so, so what do you, what do you, before we get into some of the specific objections, what do you think of people who just kind of disregard this argument as an old argument that really holds no ground?
0: Well, chronological snobbery has never been a good response. Things can fall out of favor uh, for very poor reasons. So anybody who has nothing better to offer than just it's an old argument or it was forgotten. I mean, you ever hear of forgotten treasure, you know, buried treasure, Um, that kind of blatant chronological snobbery. I don't think there's any uh, answer to it except to say that's very irrational. We need to investigate what. what the case is for something, not assume some kind of naive view of of human intellectual progress where anything that's been left behind must be stupid you know that would that would not be a good response at all. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I I completely agree with you that we shouldn't toss something out without at least considering what the argument has to say. And with that being said, we'll kind of look at some of the objections here to this argument, whether it's by Christians or non-Christians, whoever. So can you just outline some of like the main of objections to this argument and how you kind of respond to them?
0: Well, interestingly, if you listened to that unbelievable interview Uh, between, or debate, or whatever you want to call it, between Bart Ehrman and my husband, Tim, you may notice that Bart Ehrman had virtually no objections. In fact, Mm -hmm. it sounded like he had not even prepared. He was not even, even though it was billed ahead of time as a debate on undesigned coincidences, he derailed the conversation early on to argue about the authorship of the Gospels, which wasn't even what it was supposed to be about. Uh, Tim, fortunately, you know, was able to discuss that off the top of his head. But when eventually they got to discussing undesigned coincidences, Bart Ehrman said something, again, very historically snobbish, like, this sounds like some kind of 19th century arc- argument. OK, you say that like it's a bad thing. you know. So uh, a lot of people really haven't even tried to refute this. Uh, partly because it was neglected for a long time. Since my book came out in 2017, there have been a few attempts, mostly online and so forth, to say a few things against it. So I'm going to just talk about two types of objections. Some skeptics and even some, unfortunately, allegedly Christian biblical scholars will allege that an author just added a detail non-factually without even attempting to explain the coincidence. So basically, Oh yeah, I think one of those authors just made that up as a redaction. And it's like, well, then how do you explain the fact that it fits together? No attempt to explain the fact that it fits together. So I'll give an example here uh, also about the feeding of the 5,000 in uh, Mark. It says that the men sat down on the green grass, the people sat down on the green grass specifically mentions the color in John it says that it was around Passover time and it says there was grass, but it doesn't mention the color. And it says that it was around the time of Passover. And Mark doesn't mention that it was around the time of Passover. Now if you look at rainfall and so forth, it's not an excessively narrow band, but you're certainly not going to get a whole bunch of green grass for you know over 5,000 people to be sitting down on in the Galilee region just any old time of year. But around the time of Passover, That would be a time when plausibly you would have green grass. So the Passover can explain the green grass. Well, I've seen one uh, Christian biblical scholar say, uh, well, that was added as an allusion to Psalm 23. Mark just was alluding to, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now, does that actually count as an objection to the undesigned coincidence? Answer, no. What that guy just did is he just made up uh, off the top of his head something, and we could do this, of course, for any detail in any historical account if we were just, you know, clever and uh, creative enough. Well, he added that as an allusion to this. You know, we can always say something. And it doesn't explain the fact that the green grass fits together with the mention of Passover in in, uh, John. He just left that unexplained. He just left that as a pure coincidence. And So we can even show, I even have a probability theory article in a secular journal about why it's a, it's better evidence for something like this event that happened, this larger umbrella event, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, in this case, the feeding of the 5,000. I use a picnic in, in, in the article. But um, if you have an explanation for why those two come together, then if you just say, ah, oh, one of them just made it up and then it's just chance that it fits together with this other thing. So that's that's one of the kinds we get. Just like say, oh, uh, one of the guys just made it up. That's my theory. It's like, well, that's this is not very satisfactory theory. Uh, another ig- type of example would concern, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, so it, it, back last August, um, Dr. Michael Lacona and uh, now Dr. Kurt Jarrus, uh did a podcast in which they discussed undesigned coincidences among those synoptic gospels. And they didn't name me, they, they didn't name Hidden in Plain View, they didn't discuss it explicitly at all, but they talked about people who do undesigned coincidences among Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they implied pretty strongly that when you do that, you're ignoring the theory that there's literary dependence among those, and that that we should be super suspicious about any undesigned coincidences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because there could have been literary dependence. Now, as I already pointed out in uh, Hidden in Plain View, I pointed it out again more explicitly since then in uh, the uh, Mirror or the Mask that came out in December, that's a false dilemma. Like either you have complete literary independence like where one, you know, Matthew wasn't reading Mark or whatever, or you have complete factual dependence with literary dependence, where Matthew can't add anything factual to Mark if he's writing and in some sense following literarily, following Mark literally. Now this is why I gave the example of the. Um, his servants. And I explicitly emphasized just a couple minutes ago that there may be some literary dependence there. Matthew may have been using Mark as a a convenience. Nobody was worried about plagiarism. You know, he doesn't want to reinvent the wheel. He's like, Mark has a good account of this. He may be following it and there may be literary dependence. But then if Matthew has extra information, even in that very account, where in some sense he's following or dependent on Mark, that doesn't mean he can't add any extra information. You know, he's not like, oh, wait, I'm I'm following Mark here. If I happen to know that Herod said this to his servant, better not add that because I'm following Mark. You know, there's no rule like that that says you can't add a detail if you have additional factual information. So we need to not have that false dichotomy between complete independence, complete dependence. So unfortunately, that's emerged as a type of objection, quote unquote, objection to um, undesigned coincidences among the synoptic gospels that uh, oh but 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 they're literally dependent so there can't be. Notice that this type of alleged objection also leaves the coincidence unexplained like the previous type of alleged objection because in that case, if Matthew didn't have factually independent information that he was speaking to his servants, how do we explain? the connection with Luke and the mention of Joanna, which does appear to provide a pretty good explanation of how uh, Matthew could have had additional information. So it just kind of leaves that out of account. Well, he's dependent, so so something. He's dependent on Mark, so this is, you know, you're gonna have a lot of trouble with that. You're gonna have to make up something very ad hoc where what the undesigned coincidence leads us to think is, yeah. Herod did say it to his servants. It's true. And the Christian community learned about this because one of Herod's uh, high level servants was a, a member or at least his wife was a member. Probably he was a member, too, of the Christian community. That's what the undesigned coincidence there is arguing for. So those would be two categories or two types of alleged objections to it.
1: Yeah, I think you did a good job laying those out. Uh, wh- one thing I'll add kind of I'm, I'm curious your thoughts about is I think a lot of skeptics may uh, listen to this or think about this idea of a coincidences and see, hey, there's so uh, these authors in this hypnotics, they're writing about the same events and putting them in their in their own. Perspectives a lot of the time, and isn't it possible they just kind of added something to 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 each event, which might make it look a little bit more unique? Um, so, which might be an explanation for these, uh, so to speak, undesigned coincidences. If, if if you understand what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, well, that that's the first category that mm-hmm. I just gave a minute ago. Uh, in that case, the green grass, the and that was unfortunately not a skeptic, but I'm sure a skeptic would love to use it. Um. a a scholar named Nelson, if I recall correctly, anyway, um, that, you know, Mark just added it to allude to, he makes me lie down in green pasture. So that would be exactly the kind of thing you're talking about here. As I I pointed out, Mm -hmm. that doesn't explain the coincidence. That's just saying, that's a kind of a dogmatism that you're saying, well, I think somebody just added it without factual basis. Okay. There's the assertion. How does that explain that puzzle-like fitting together? And so that's not an explanation of the fitting together. It's essentially, it relegates that fitting together to the realm of pure coincidence. It just happened. Now, you know, if you had that situation, let's go back to the the two alleged witnesses to the robbery. Okay, and you say, well, I think one of those guys just made up that thing about the guy's uh, shoelace being untied. He just made it up to make his account different, and it's like, really? I mean, if he wasn't even trying to allude to the tripping, then it's just a coincidence that he made up something that would explain the tripping, and that's not probabilistically the best way to bet. That's not uh, that's not a reasonable way to bet to say somebody just made something uh, something up out of whole cloth that it just happened to fit with this other thing.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's move on to your. Next work. Um there's a lot we could talk about here. So just to start off, uh with the whole the mirror of the mask. Um wh- what's this whole book about? What's the idea? Uh, I, I think I'm getting the right am I getting the right book as we move on here? Is that is that your second mirror book? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I just want to make sure we're on the right page. I okay, I'm sorry. So tell me tell me what's what's this book about? What's going on here?
0: So the mirror or the mask, uh the subtitle is Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices. And it has what you might call a positive vector and a negative vector. It has um, more positive evidence for the reliability of the Gospels. And uh, those include additional undesigned coincidences, some undesigned coincidences repeated from hidden in plain view. Uh, It has other types of arguments we can talk about maybe in a minute, but additional evidence for the positive reliability of the Gospels. And I call that positive reliability, the reportage model and um, this notion of what the authors were trying to do and what kind of people the authors were. And then it's it's what you might call negative vector, it's critical vector, is uh, confronting some theories that the gospel authors changed some things. They changed, for example, a, a pretty unfortunately popular one is that I already mentioned that John moved, the temple cleansing, not just that he narrated it in an unclear way, let's be clear, not just that he wasn't trying to say when Jesus cleansed the temple, but he was actually trying to say it happened early in the ministry, uh, trying to make it look that way in his gospel, but he knew it really happened later in the, in the ministry. So that would be an example of what I call a fictionalizing or fact-changing literary device, which is just a descriptive term that I define in the, in the book for, for changing these kinds of things. Sometimes they're bigger, sometimes they're smaller. Um, you might call some of them details. You might call some of them fabricating uh, sayings. Some of them would be uh, inventing events. Some of them would be bigger changes in a story or whatever. There's a lot of these and I give a lot in, in the book. So the, the that critical vector, those libera- literary devices that I'm trying to liberate the gospels from, I'm arguing that the gospel authors didn't do that that they 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 did not uh, deliberately change things like that. Uh, obviously they they could word things in their own way. they you know, it's not like they were like verbatim copying what some other author said. We saw in in Matthew, he's like adding additional information or that you might tell one friend might tell a story in his own words, you might tell a story in your own words. That's not the point. but deliberately changing these details of the accounts or these facts about what really happened in literal history. Um, I argue doesn't doesn't happen. And I call that the, the mask. People have joked the, the mask on the front cover, it's over the eyes. Uh, and that you know then COVID happened, I should have ma- it made mm-hmm. this kind of a mask on the front cover um since it came out at the very end of uh 2019. But then I argue instead that the gospels are a mirror of the life and teachings of Jesus and his disciples and reflect those in a natural and accurate way, like a good mirror.
1: Mm. Uh, so just, just in a general sense, uh, you talked about a, a, a good portion of your books dedicated to the idea of the reliability of the gospels, like I can trust the gospels. If you, and just, I mean, there's obviously a lot you wrote about this, but just in a few minutes, what are some of the key points you bring up that show, Hey, the gospels are reliable. We can trust the gospels.
0: Right. So, uh, I, I do a lot of talking about what's often called internal evidence. So undesigned coincidences are a form of internal evidence where we're looking for signs of accuracy within the accounts. In police work, sometimes this is related to what's called forensic statement analysis, which is something that Jay Warner Wallace likes to talk about. Um, So Undesigned Coincidences are one type, but another type that I talk about is what I call unexplained allusions, which is when uh, an author mentions something and there's no reason to think his immediate audience would have known what he was talking about, Um, but he just throws it in there because it's what he happens to think of. So in John, for example, in John two, it says Jesus and his disciples and his mother and his brothers went down to Capernaum and stayed there a few days. Like, why? You know, and then it just moves on with the next time he goes mm-hmm. to Jerusalem. Um, Very, very pointless. OK. And you you do find that, you know, I might say, be telling some story. I might go, oh, yeah, that was the day that my, my hamster died or something, you know. And then I just move on, you know, or, that was the day uh Kiki died, you know, or something. And like, who's Kiki? Well, it's my dog or something, you know, and I don't stop to explain it, or I don't go down a rabbit trail, but I just say something as I'm going through, um, and we find quite a few of these in, in the Gospels, so that's an example. Um, another type of argument I call unnecessary details. Now, a liar can add unnecessary details. Liars know to do this, and J. Warner Wallace will say that. Oh, yeah, you get a clever liar. He's gonna like, throwing a lot of pointless cloud of details. That's true, but that's because he's a liar. It wouldn't work to make it look realistic if the liar didn't know that that does make it look realistic, okay? Mm. It it gives it verisimilitude. And it's important to remember that not a lot of people, uh, especially these literary biblical scholars, want to say the Gospels are just liars. You know, they'll want to say they're it's some different genre or something. Well, I can tell you this as a literary scholar myself, the genre of hyper-realistic fiction, you know, like a, a, a modern realism novel, did not arise for hundreds and hundreds of years thereafter. C.S. Lewis points this out in one of his essays too. Um, so that's anachronistic in itself. And so we, we certainly can see that there's verisimilitude in these details. So unnecessary details, unexplained evolutions, And I also talk about unified character. And I, I emphasize uh, the character of Peter is one example I give where they're very different stories, but it's the same, clearly the same guy. And that's a very hard thing to fake. These are very hard things to fake, and since I've talked about some of these things, I've actually had um, I've had a, a person who works in security, in police work, who's written to me, and he's said, "Yeah, you know, we do find that these are indicators of of truthfulness in accounts." So that's kind of cool, kind of kind of encouraging. And so what I try to say is, we get a view of who these authors were. I also talk about external details, ways that matters of culture. And um, and I'm going to do that in my forthcoming book on John 2, facts about little known facts about culture. This isn't just, hey, the city of Jerusalem existed Well, Spider-Man is set in New York City. That is not what we're talking about. I'm talking about much smaller details are just Artlessly mentioned by the gospel authors, and they, they square with what we know to be true. We put all this together, we get a view of who these authors were. That gives us confidence in what they say, and so that's a way of thinking of them as reliable gospels, in this case because they're reliable authors, and reliable authors because we can see that they're writing reliable gospels.
1: Mm. Yeah, so... In this work, you've you've received some pushback from scholars such as, like, Dr. Craig Evans, uh, Dr. Michael Lacona now. I know he's released, like, a gazillion-part series on YouTube kind of going through some of these It's obviously not a gazillion, but he's going he, – they're critiquing some of your work. Um, so on this – so could you just talk a little bit about, like, what's the What's the disagreement? Where are you guys disagreeing on? Um, kind of your thoughts on it. And then obviously you can't go through all of it in sure. this short interview. So just wh- wh- where people can go if they want to see your response uh, mm-hmm. in full when it, when it all comes out.
0: Well, let me, let me just back up for a minute and say, Dr. Lacona abruptly announced in late May that he was going to respond to my work. Prior to that, for over two years, he actually said that he was not going to respond. So he, he'd he been saying for a long time that he would not respond. So this, is, this came as a surprise to me because he had been very emphatic that he wasn't going to. So let's just start there. Um, also, many of the things that he's now saying, I mean, I'm seeing the videos when everybody else is seeing the videos. I have no other access. Um, so he's released about half of the ones he's going to release. And many of the things he's saying, I already addressed in the mirror of the mask. Mm. OK, so in a sense, what you could say, and I'm willing to, to own this, is that I was giving him pushback. You know, it wasn't so much that he was giving me pushback. He was refusing to respond to my work when it was in blog post form and and even implied that he was probably not going to respond to the book either. Or it, So it seemed consistent with what he had said. Um, I became aware of his ideas about these literary devices that I was discussing a few minutes ago, and then uh, some of the things that Dr. Craig Evans has said concerning the um, Gospel of John, especially very strong comments that he's made. and then some things that are sort of scattered through the work of Craig Keener. Craig Keener it, it says some things about the reliability of the gospels that support them. And then in certain specific respects, he accepts these kinds of literary devices. So those are more scattered around. Um, and then Dr. William Lane Craig, um, who has endorsed Dr. Lacona's work, he's endorsed more specifically a couple of uh, specific literary devices like the moving of the temple cleansing. So. I was picking up on this and then saying, you know, I I don't really think this is correct and writing work responding to it. Um, So in some ways you want to see my responses to Dr. Lacona's views. Read The Mirror of the Mask. Let's start there. I already wrote the book, you know, and and he's not, um, you know, even taking into account uh, a lot of what I said there in in these things, these videos he's released thus far. So um, on what do we disagree? Those, those literary devices that I just described where they're changing some mm-hmm. of these things. Um, sometimes people are very surprised to learn what these amount to. This is not, you know, Lydia McGrew is so rigid and she doesn't think that we could just be unclear about time. She doesn't believe in any kind of paraphrase. That's a complete straw man of my position. And I'm very clear about that. In the Mirror of the Mask, I was clear about it when I debated Dr. Craig Evans on The Unbelievable Show two years ago in May. I was super explicit four times. I said, I'm not saying that the words of Jesus have to be recorded like a tape recorder absolutely verbatim. Then a year or so later, Dr. Evans was interviewed by Kurt Jarrus, and he said, my critics, and they, and they were talking about me because 10 minutes later they brought up my name. They were clearly talking about more conservatives than him. They say that if John doesn't record Jesus' words tape recorder verbatim, uh then John is falsifying the account. Like it's a complete straw man that I had refuted four times in my debate with him. So, you know, who knows why you went back to that. But what we're talking about instead are much stronger views. Now the moving of the temple cleansing is a relatively minor example though. I mean, it's still, you know, important if we're supposed to go in and we're going to say, oh, gee, maybe the time when they said something happened is just wrong. They just changed that. That's going to qualify our concept of the reliability of the gospels going in. Um, but there are there are bigger ones. Dr. Evans has stated, uh, and has never said that he changed his mind, that I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Uh, these, these are called the I am sayings with predicates. I am the such and mm-hmm. such, that these were the creations of the community that recorded our version of the Gospel of John. And that if you would followed Jesus around with the video camera, you would not find him saying this, that they were the creative extrapolations of that community because they said he is to us the light of the world. And they were basing this on other teaching that Jesus had given. Now, he calls that paraphrase. That's not what most of us would call paraphrase. And that's definitely, shall we say, a creative extrapolation of the word paraphrase. Uh, and if you're gonna call that paraphrase, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call that the fallacy of equivocation. And I'm gonna call that ma- major redefinition of the word paraphrase. Um, so that's an example. Um, Dr. Lacona has suggested that either Matthew or John, and he just says one or the other, he doesn't decide which one may have, he calls it relocated, the appearance to Mary Magdalene. Now, so in Matthew, several of the women meet Jesus after they've already met the angels, they've heard Jesus has risen, they're running away with joy to tell the disciples and they see Jesus and they fall down at his feet and grasp his feet and that's that scene. In John 20, uh, Mary Magdalene is alone or so it appears weeping, at the tomb. She she hasn't heard that Jesus is risen. She just knows the body is missing. She sees Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener. And she says, oh, please tell me where you have laid him that I may take him away. She, she thinks the body has just been moved. Completely different premise for mm. these women meeting uh, Jesus. So Dr. Lacona thinks Mary Magdalene is being portrayed as present in both cases. I deny that. I think Matthew, that's an impression you would get if you read Matthew. But I think Matthew just doesn't say that Mary Magdalene left the group. Maybe you he hadn't heard that she'd left the group, but he doesn't say that she's with the group either. Um, and so, you know, Lacona says these are both accounts of how Mary Magdalene met Jesus first after his resurrection and one of them has been changed. Well, think what that would mean if John changed it. He'd have to be making up the whole scene because the very premise of the scene in John 20 is incompatible with the premise of the scene in John 28. So you can use a word like relocated the appearance to Mary Magdalene, but that is scene invention that is incident invention. That's just what I call a euphemism for what's really being alleged. So these are examples. I give many more in the mirror of the mask. Please read it. There's no substitute for reading it. Um, and I have a whole series of blog posts already online, too, that I did. Those are free. But uh, Mirror of the Mask just came out in Kindle on June 1st, which was providentially the day that Dr. Lacona's surprise video series, the first one was released. So, and and I didn't plan that. My publisher didn't plan that. You can call it an undesigned coincidence if you want. Um, so that gives you an idea of what these are. And that's what we disagree on. Uh, I think that, so why do I think I'm right? I'm onto that part. Well, as you say, you know, I can't give all the reasons, but one is all that evidence for the reliability of the gospels. And I think it is very artificial to put up a wall and to say, well, they're reliable when they're reliable and they change things when they change things. You know, that's what I call anti-inductive reasoning. If you keep finding that a person you know that his accounts are being confirmed by things like these undesigned coincidences or connections with external facts, where you check it out, you got that right, you got that right, what do we do? We infer something about him. Right about whether he um, just tells the truth in a ordinary sense of telling the truth right? Or whether he's going to relocate somebody's in a, in a sense that involves making up this entire dialogue that never happened, um, or whether he's going to like move an event by three and a half years uh, or three years, you know, or more from one time and he's going to say it happened in 2017 when it really happened in 2020. Okay, is he the kind of person who does that? And so the more we learn positively about the gospel's reliability, that puts pressure against these theories that they felt free and it was their genre to change these things. What kind of genre does it look like? It doesn't look like that genre. So that's one reason. Then I also, I am very thorough and my argument is very staged. I go through the attempted argument that that the gospels are in this genre of Greco-Roman biography where Dr. Lacona says it's part and parcel of that genre to change these kinds of things. I go into the Greco-Roman literature, I go into the exercise books, I go into this, and I show how weak this argument really is, that there was this genre, that the gospel authors knew a genre that had those properties, that it was part and parcel to change things. I'm not saying there was no genre of Greco-Roman biography, but that it, it had—it was part and parcel of it to be likely to change these kinds of things. Um, and that the gospels, are self-consciously influenced by that. They'd have to be influenced. You don't go around saying, oh, it's part of the genre of my, uh, what I'm writing to move things by several years. I'm allowed to do that. You don't do that by accident. You have to know that you're allowed to do that. Like if somebody's making a movie based on true events, he knows he's allowed to change some things. So the gospel authors couldn't just do that accidentally. So I go through this or that the exercise books supposedly support this, that the gospel authors would have been educated from those exercise books and so on and so on. I go through this, you know, it's like it fails. There's so many different problems with it. And then um, I show also how the alleged, evidence within the Gospels is better explained in other ways too. So that's a kind of outline of why I I think these are just very, very uh, under supported, incorrect views and how I argue for that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot there. Uh, So one thing I think that's really interesting is this idea of the alleged contradictions in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people may think that it, may, it might be harder to defend these contradictions if they take some, or alleged contradictions, obviously, mm-hmm. um, if they take a view similar to yours. So just, just in a few minutes, can you talk about how you address like this, this idea of Bible contradictions in your view? Obviously, it's hard to just do it in a general sense when there's... Sure. But just in general sense, how do you look at these?
0: So I, I want to give some categories here. One thing I want to back up to is I, I want to point out, Dr. Lacona often will allege quite a number of times, a um, literary device of the kind that we are disagreeing about, whatever you want to call that, um, where there isn't even an alleged contradiction. And what was amazing, the video he just released two days ago on Monday, he explicitly disagreed with me about whether you even need to have an appearance of contradiction, even an appearance, before you allege one of these devices. So we're going to take things that are just differences where it would be super easy to put them together. So um, I'll give you an example. In the um, in the Synoptic Gospels, it says that um, it just quotes the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is the narrator quotes that about John the Baptist. So he associates mm-hmm. that verse with John the Baptist. John as a scene doesn't occur in any of the synoptics. It's just a completely unique scene where they come and ask him, you know, who are you and what are you here for? And he says, eventually, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Okay, Dr. Lacona says in his book, why are there differences in the gospels? It is impossible to know whether John the Baptist really said that or not, or whether John so-called transferred it. Well, who'd he be transferring it from? Mark? the narrator of some other, I don't know, you know, it's not even transferring it from one speaker to another. Uh, In other words, that John the evangelist made it up that John the Baptist said that. Now there's no apparent discrepancy here, right? I mean, it's not like the synoptic gospels say that John didn't say it. It's not even like they describe that scene and skip it. There's nothing, it's just, there's no apparent discrepancy. I call this an utterly unforced error. So let's start with the fact that these devices are being alleged in places where there is not, not even an alleged contradiction or parent discrepancy. That's kind of striking. So then the next thing is, <clears throat> if there is an alleged discrepancy, well, like you said, it's a big category. So I think most of us who have worked in apologetics, we know the skeptics will allege discrepancies all over the place. And you go read it and you go, that doesn't even look like a discrepancy to me. What are you talking about? You know, um, were there two angels at the tomb, or was there one angel at the tomb? Mm. Well, that's not a discrepancy. If there's not even apparent discrepancy, if there were two, and there was one, right? So uh, some of these don't even uh, they're claimed to be discrepancies. You look at them; they don't even appear to be discrepancies. Um, but now suppose you do have what's alleged to be a discrepancy, um, like. I mean, again, it's hard to say, does it even look like one or not? But it's alleged to be a discrepancy that John tells the temple cleansing as happening at the beginning, the temple cleansing, notice that word. And um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell it at the end. That's said to be a discrepancy. It, it, it isn't really because Jesus could have cleansed the temple twice. And I don't just mean logically possibly. I mean, it's entirely plausible that he would have cleansed the temple twice. Very similar things happen. We can give example after example in the world where you know, generally similar things happen. There's not some uncanny resemblance there. Okay, so that's one thing. That what we do is we do harmonization. Now, does that mean harmonization is a bad word? Does that mean any kind of grasping at straws? Harmonization, however crazy and stupid, did Gyrus's daughter die twice? You know, you get these men of harmonization where it can be something that's obviously very strained. But that's not what I'm talking about. In fact, I would say. Um, Harmonization is a reasonable tool of historical analysis for secular history as well. If you don't use that, you're shutting yourself off to learning more about the event. And that's bad historical practice because you need to be able to learn more about the event from multiple sources. So that's an approach. First, noticing that these don't even look like discrepancies. So why are we alleging, you know, that they are, or why are we alleging a compositional device? Second of all, reasonable harmonization. And then third, sometimes, and especially we're talking about secular history, people might have made an ordinary mistake, OK? Um, it's astonishing how ordinary mistakes kind of drop out. I mean, occasionally, Dr. Lacona will say, maybe Plutarch made a mistake, but very, very seldom. Um, and that's, that needs to be a more robust character. J. J. Warner Wallace will, will talk about this. Human historical sources and witnesses often contradict each other. I mean, they literally contradict each other, not just they appear to, but they really do. Uh, sometimes they even contradict themselves when they tell the same story at different times. That's normal. It's not, it doesn't have a special ancient glow to it. It doesn't have an aura or a penumbra around it. This looks like an ancient literary device. No, they just look like garden variety, apparent discrepancies. So then we should check how how plausible garden variety explanations are like an ordinary error. Now, you know, Inerrantists aren't going to want to do that for the Gospels, but let's, when we're looking for what we call a baseline frequency for secular history, we certainly need to bring that in. Um, and as I argue in the mirror of the mask, an old fashioned inerrantist has nothing to gain by relabeling these things as literary devices because the factual information is still uh, not the way it really happened in that respect. Um, and these are not specific recognizable things either they're all conjectural now what if what if none of that seems to work or you're like that that doesn't work well again in the secular literature you should consider maybe this guy was just lying i mean there are liars right and and if we're convinced that a gospel author changed this why should it be a why should it be a, a, a why should it be a literary device you know maybe the skeptics are going to say you should just conclude they were propagandists well I don't think they were. I can argue that they weren't. But let's own the possible effects of our theories. But there's another thing. What would a traditional inerrantist do before about places where he could not plausibly harmonize or where he said, man, I am just not satisfied with any of these? Let's ask that. What would someone like Gleason Archer, Norman Geisler, um, someone like that have done, you know, Vern Poitras, if they came to a place where they could not be satisfied with any of the alleged uh, harmonizations. I don't know. This is a legitimate approach. And we need to be willing to say, I don't know. Maybe there's something I don't know about this. So if you don't, if theologically you're committed to not seeing that there was an error, first, Remember that if, if you're approaching this without that theological commitment, that is a simpler explanation than saying that it was a literary device. But second, remember that for you, uh, a person who is a traditional inerrantist, you need to be tough-minded enough to say that maybe there's something you don't know. So those are all a sort of a, sort of a survey of types of answers that I think make far more sense than this theory, this attempt, sort of inductively, to argue, oh, there's uh, alleged discrepancies. There's alleged discrepancies. I guess there must be these literary devices, you know. Gee, why, why did we never uh, feel that we needed to do that before? Well, because we considered these other uh, approaches to make more sense, and they still today make more sense.
1: Mm. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot, of really good information there, and it's sort of as we uh, round third base and home, so to speak, in baseball. Uh, just talk, just talk a little bit about you. You alluded to it a little bit. Um, your your new book coming out soon, The Eye of the Beholder, on I believe you said John two or John three. I, I my brain fart there for a second. So just talk a little bit about your new book. What's going on there?
0: It's about John. It's about the whole Gospel of John. Um. There's a lot of material on John in the mirror or the mask, as you'll see. And some of that is going to be repeated. But um, the Gospel of John comes in for a lot of extra doubt, as the examples I gave from Dr. Craig Evans, and there are a lot more quotations from Dr. Craig Evans about the Gospel of John uh, from his debate in 2012 with Dr., uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman, and Evans has never said, I was wrong, or I've changed my mind about that. I said this, but now I think that. He's never said that. Um, instead, he's tried to say he didn't say what he actually did say, and it's all on <laughs> it's all on YouTube, on Dr. Ehrman's uh, YouTube channel. So John comes in for a lot of extra doubt. In one of Dr. Lacona's recent videos, he kind of ended his uh, video with what I call insinuations about John. Well, you know, a lot of scholars say that John is different. John is so different. John is a transposition into a different key. John used different idiom. And it, like not even coming down to brass tacks and saying, well, exactly what are you saying about John? It's, it's sort of like, you know, you have, your, you have your neighbor and you're like, well, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying that I saw him go into her house late at night. You know, um, I don't like this kind of gossipy talk about John. Let's let's make make our theories and own them and then just discuss the evidence for and against them. Um, but there is a lot of that kind of talk. And then there are a lot of specific theories that John changed things. Um, so what I'm doing is an entire book where I kind of, I, I use the mirror of the mask as background. I didn't write a 546 page book just to write it all over again. But I, I go to the gospel of John and some of the special reasons and arguments that are actually really weak reasons for thinking that John is less historical in its nature and in its genre than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so I bring in more positive, once again, it's got this positive vector, this negative vector. I bring in um, more evidence even than what I mentioned in *The Mirror of the Mask* for the reliability of John, John and its its literal accuracy, and I bring and then I answer arguments that have been made against it. I also have a lot about authorship because authorship is is people are interested and it's been a topic on which a lot has been written. I try not to let authorship be like the whole book, but because mm-hmm. there's such a big literature, I have to discuss that, and uh, I think authorship is relevant to that kind of literal reliability, uh, it certainly means that the early church thought of this as coming from an eyewitness and that affected their expectation from it. And people can try to say, oh, well maybe it was written by John the son of Zebedee and he just changed this. That's that's really uh, kind of a, an ad hoc notion. And in a sense, it takes away with the left hand what it gives with the right hand. Yeah, yeah, I acknowledge it was written by John the son of Zebedee, but he changed some stuff anyway. Um, usually, and I think correctly, evidence of authorship by a close disciple of Jesus has been taken to support literal factual accuracy and there's a reason for that. So I have stuff on authorship. I even have an appendix on Richard Balcom's theory that another guy named John who was Jesus' disciple wrote the book. And I, I try not to sort of antagonize people who like that theory of Balcom in the main body of the book because I think they can often be on board with high reliability but it, it can also be used by people to undermine that. And it's also just intrinsically interesting. So I discussed that in an appendix. So that's that's what the book is going to be. And I hope it will come out in early 2021. It's being copy edited right now. The Eye of the Beholder.
1: That's super exciting. I'm looking forward to reading that. Uh, Dr. McGrew, it's been a really good interview. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, any closing thoughts or if people want to follow you and your work, where did they go? Well,
0: I would very much advise and uh, recommend to find my Facebook profile, my public Facebook page. You don't have to be my Facebook friend. I put up public content uh, pretty regularly. So just follow me on Facebook. Um, you can email me with a question, McGrew at gmail.com. Uh, please introduce yourself. I like to kind of know who I'm talking to. And um, then also my author page is lydiamagrew.com. And there I have links to various blog posts and things like that. And also when my new book is available for pre-order, I'll put that on there. But the quickest way to get news about what I'm doing is to follow me on Facebook, follow my public content on Facebook.
1: Awesome. It's been a great interview, Dr. McGrew. Appreciate your time. Encourage everyone to go follow uh, Dr. McGrew and her work. Um, if you want to follow Here in Apologetics, you can follow us at Here Apologetics on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, really anywhere. And big shout out to our supporters, patreon.com slash Here in Apologetics. Uh, thank you for doing this, Dr. McGrew. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for having me, Zach.